This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the Redbox podcast i'm matt chorley just about to go on my holiday so i'm a bit demob happy coming up on today's episode tony blair the rock opera written by harry hill i'm genuinely not making this up it opens uh, next week we've been hearing from uh, the co-writer steve brown and a couple of the stars of the show about why on earth they've made a musical about the former prime minister uh, so that's coming up in just a moment first as ever we kick off with our columnist panel on a friday it's formel it's james forsyth and melanie reed the columnists with formel james forsyth and melanie reed on Times Radio. Yeah, we say hello and good morning to Melanie Reed. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Uh, morning, James. Morning. Nice to have you both with us. Uh, the sun is shining. Everyone loves Rishi Sunak again because he's sending us all money. And then along comes James Forsyth to pour a bucket of cold water over it and says it's only bought him six months and he's going to have to do it all over again. Explain why, Joe. I think the cost of living squeeze it, it, it is going to be quite profound. You had Andrew Bailey, the governor of Bank of England, warning about kind of apocalyptic increases in, in food prices. Now, I, I think it was foolish of him to say that when you're the governor of the Bank of England, you probably generally shouldn't talk about the apocalypse. It doesn't really help with um, consumer confidence, which is already at a, uh, at a record low. Uh, but I don't think he's that wrong. And I think that because this cost of living crisis and I'm sorry, because this inflation has been driven by food and energy, these are the two most basic things purchases people make. You know, they can't defer them. They can't say, oh, I, 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 I'll, I'll choose. I'll, I'll choose to wait until inflation has eased before I before I purchase that. Um, then I think that, you know, if that is still the case come the autumn, I think the government probably will have to do more again. Um, and do you think the government, do you think they know that? I mean, to some extent, it felt as if, Part of what Rishi Sunak was trying to do by not making an announcement now, this side of the summer, was knowing that the prices were going to go up in the autumn when the the energy price cap rose. And so he was basically hoping to delay making that announcement until we got close to that. Because when we get to there, even having announced all of this, there'll be pressure for him to do something again because both the money will have gone, but also the the sort of political capital will will have evaporated. I think that the reason it's happening now is it, it is remember if you think back to um the spring statement, <clears throat> there was some suggestion that the uh 
energy prices were, were coming off their top uh, and therefore the, the energy price increase was not in October, it was not going to be that significant. Uh, those hopes have been dashed because, you know, the, the fact that we, the Russia has invaded Ukraine and also it is also now painfully clear that the war in the, uh, this war is going to go on for years. This is, this is not going to be brief. Um, and this is going to be a prolonged uh, conflict. And that is going to keep both energy and food prices high for some time. And I think, you know, if you think back to where we were in February, lots of people thought that, oh, what's happened is the, the global economy has, has bounced back from COVID and demand is outstripping supply. And quite soon, you know, there'll be more US shale coming online and the like, and energy prices will start to come off their top. I think mean, it's quite clear that we're now in for a period of elevated energy prices, which is going to go on for quite some time. Benny, what do you make of uh, what Rishi Sunak did? Do you think it's enough? Or, I mean, is he just going to have to get the chatbook out again later? Or, or, or level with people that this is just the new reality? Well, I think I think he he had to do it. Um, I think something had to be done um, because, as James says, it's 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 a very grave situation. I it, it, it makes me rather sad in a way that there is this this cynical view that that um, amongst some parts of the Tory Party that this is wasted money because the impact won't last and it'll, it'll um, you know it, it, it's a throwaway. He would have been better. He would have been better trying to spend it in other ways. I think this this is we are in we are in rather an emergency situation. Um, it's just a fact of life that it's acting like this in an emergency is something which all governments have to do. Uh, I mean, a, 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 a Institute for Fiscal Studies says Gordon Brown would have been proud of this, or might have been proud of this, um, because it's it, it, you know it, it, it's it's doing the, the it's helping people. Um, I mean, I'm I'm getting 150 pounds because I'm on um, disability living allowance. Um, I'm gratefully received. Um, a, a lot of other people in far greater need than me will will need it far more. And um, I think there is a limit to. We have to be pragmatic, and, and uh, governments have to be pragmatic. And sometimes the the ideology just just has to go stuff, go burn. Um, uh, James, is, is that? Do you think that's that's now the view in uh, in numbers? Because we've we've been hearing for weeks, uh, you know, the, the, the windfall tax was ideologically unconservative. That we had to uh, the the people, you know, the public couldn't expect the treasury to step in every time something uh, went wrong. What is the current conservative ideology? Well, I, I mean, you, to take a step back. I mean, you you can say two things here, right? The government had to step in. Not just for the for the moral reasons that um, Melanie just outlined, but economically the government had to step in because if you hadn't offered people any relief to help them deal with these energy prices, we would have had a recession because the sheer amount of money in terms of consumer demand you would have taken out of the economy would have tipped the economy into recession. So you had to act if you wanted to prevent a recession. Then the question becomes, you know, do you try? Do you just borrow all of this, or do you try and partly fund it? And I think the case for a windfall tax is this: is uh, these energy companies are making these huge profits not because they've invested in in some new technology or they've innovated in some way. They are making these huge profits, frankly, because Vladimir Putin has invaded Ukraine. And then I mean, the second justification for it, to my mind, is this: is this is a sector that has not been shy of asking the government for support when times have been difficult. Um, And once you start doing that, you kind of change the kind of 
I think you change the nature of your relationship with the state. You know, I, I think if you were trying to suddenly randomly tax a sector that was doing very well but doesn't go to a government asking for support, that would be that would be wrong. But I think to do it about a sector that regularly goes to the government for help and assistance <laughs> is a different question. It's, it's an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting point that um, that uh, the, the particular the I was also struck as well. They had been saying, "Oh, we've got loads of money. We've got loads of money," and then the government goes uh, goes and does the thing, and they're like, "Oh, that's terrible. We're not sure we're going to be able to cope with this." Um, Melanie, what about as a country? Do we? I mean, do, the pandemic has fundamentally changed what people expect the government to do. Every every time there is an issue, uh, there is now an expectation that in the end albeit dragged kicking and screaming sometimes, Rishi Sunak will step in. Yeah, we, 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 well, we expect Father Christmas to come once a year at least, and then we have our birthdays and we get our birthday presents too, don't we? So we are, we are um, as human beings, people who like, who expect um, um, a, little, a little joy every so often. Um, voters are pragmatists. Um, and I think... Yes, there very much is an argument that we can all become a bit too dependent on this. We can become like, you know, the birds in the nest, the baby birds, the fledglings opening, opening their mouths and saying, we need more now. Um, it's, it's a very difficult one. But when there is a moral urgency, you have to act. You have to act then and deal with the consequences, I'm afraid. It's, it, will, it will be fascinating to see. I think the Tories, I think the the, the, the huge question now is whether um, even doing all this will will um, allow the Conservatives to get back in in the next general election. Well, that's, that's an interesting question, though, isn't it, James? Does it does it um, improve the Tories' re-election chances, or if they are just doing what Labour have suggested and spend, you know, if they're putting up taxes and spending lots of money? Is the Labour Party does that open the does that make it open the door to to voters looking to the Labour Party and thinking, well, you know, we could have the same stuff, but without all the baggage of a party which has been in power for more than a decade. Yeah, I think I mean, any any party that has been in power for as long as the Tories have been in power for is always going to be vulnerable at a general election. The one thing I want to say is this: though, is I think the one thing about when Tories do this is I think the public have a kind of sense that they that they are more inclined to think that they are not going to get kind of carried away um, and, and, and it, it comes more it is more obvious than the, an act of necessity if you see what I mean I mean for example I've often thought that it'd be much much harder for a Labour Chancellor to have done furlough for example you know I mean, it, 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 because because people would have because they would have been more worried about what you're going to basically pay people's wages for staying at home how is that going to work? That, that it would have been more politically difficult for Labour to do that than it would be for the Conservatives in the same way that, you know, ultimately, if the NHS is ever going to be reformed, that's probably much more likely to be done by a Labour government than a Conservative one. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yes, yeah. what, goes, what goes against the grain. Um, well, one way that uh, <laughs> well, some people try to um, make money uh, in these difficult times is Alex Salmond. Uh, he's selling off bits of his set uh, from his, his uh, axed, Kremlin-backed Russia Today TV show. Uh, so he's he's got an opening price of fifty pounds for his signed desk. You 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 thinking of splashing out on that, Melanie? <laughs> yeah, I would love to have Alex's giant signature dominating my office. Um, I, this is this is I love this story. It just it just kind of we need a little bit of joy um, and. <laughs> 
it's you know, he, he, Alex Salmond's ego is such that when you when Ukraine was invaded, he announced that he decided to pause his program until peace was reestablished. You know, as if as if you know the, the Russian the, the Russians would send their soldiers back in order for for uh, him to to appear on RT <laughs> yeah. again. And, <laughs> It, it 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 somehow it's well it's it's just the hubris of it it's 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 lovely. Um, I also notice that there's the, Matt there's a distressed <laughs> distressed metal chest of drawers. I mean, I would be pretty distressed on that set too. You know? <laughs> um, I, I, part of me wondered whether the desk would be uh, would be faring better if he, if it wasn't autographed. Um, <laughs> Maybe that maybe the fact he's scribbled on it might be uh, uh, harming the price. You're not tempted, uh, James, to, um, uh, to 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 spend some money on uh, uh, Alex Salmon's distressed drawers. I think it is the cruel blow to his ego, isn't it? That that you know, that, you know the unsigned <laughs> death might have fetched more. I mean, it's a kind of, and it is a remarkable sign of how. I mean, it is hard to think of anyone whose reputation has plunged faster since they left office than Alex Salmond. In, the, in 2014, you, you would have thought that there would have been uh, various people prepared to pay very large amounts of money for kind of, kind of anything associated with Alex Salmond, you know. Uh, and, 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 now, and now now his desk is going for kind of 50 quid as the first bid, you know. <laughs> Do I hear any offers? <laughs> um, it, 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 it is a remarkable situation yeah um and how quickly he, his reputation ha, ha, has fallen it is extraordinary uh uh <laughs> as a pair of lamps have a current bid of 42 pounds i suppose that you can put and, that... and there's plen- plenty of camcorders too if anyone wants any camcorders James will cite the many read then. Of course, you can read them in the Times every week. James on a Friday, Melanie on a Saturday. Read my column in the Times as well. Uh, just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, why are they making a musical about Tony Blair? You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. When I was in the band... Hey, hey, I want to be a rock star. Yeah, Tony Blair, a man who dreamed of being a rock star, only to fail at that, and instead had to make do with becoming Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Well, his younger fantasies are finally being lived out in a new musical, Tony, the Tony Blair Rock Opera, opens next week. Uh, We'll hear from the team behind it in a moment. I've been asking for your suggestions of musicals for former Prime Ministers, and we've had an awful lot. Uh, Don't Stop Ted Heathing by Journey, (laughs) says Josh. Uh, which is very good. Uh, <laughs> the Lion King. We've had quite a lot of uh, suggestions of The Lion King. Uh, a bit obvious to my taste. Uh, Julian suggests... Uh, uh, song suggestion this one. Egwina Curry to Major John. Egwina Curry to Major John. Uh, Neil Parrish, Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> says Warren. Neil Parrish, not technically a former Prime Minister, but it's a good one. That. Um, Illegally Blonde. <laughs> Boris Johnson says Sarah in uh, Gloucestershire. Honestly, we've had so much, so many of the Theresa May, the play that goes wrong, the musical, says Richard. Uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the Marquis of Rockingham, says Duncan. Another brick in the wall pole, says Richard. Peas, glorious peas for John Major, says Gary. And Sarah says, here comes the Campbell Bannerman. So good, so, so good. 
So what is this all about, the, the Tony Blair rock opera? It's written by Steve Brown and the comedian Harry Hill. Here's what it's all about. This looks good. <clears throat> New musical. Tony, all about Tony Blair. Well, I would say that, wouldn't I? Because I'm Harry Hill and I've co-written it. <laughs> I'm at the Park Theatre in Finsbury Park. Let's go in and meet some of the cast. Hi. Uh, how you doing? Yeah. What do you have for lunch? Oh. <laughs> Hi. This is Gary, of course, who is in the show. Gary, uh, tell everyone which character you play in Tony's story. Gordon. Gordon. Brown. Gordon Brown. Do him the uh, do the thing that Gordon Brown does with his mouth. Gary. So, oh, love that. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, box office. Uh, hi. How are ticket sales going? Don't answer that. This one. So I've written this show with Steve Brown. No? Okay. Well, uh, I wrote another musical with him. I've only ever written one before, which is the X Factor musical. I can't sing, but perhaps the less said about that, the better. Okay, tell me, uh, who are you playing? I play Robin Cook. Robin well. Cook. Yeah. Now, have you ever played... Um, Jump <laughs> is this the thing you do? Uh, no, this is my first time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Come as a surprise. A, you're not available, for instance, to do John Prescott or Grant. <laughs> turning up to someone's house and punching them in the face. It depends how much. So I'm playing Princess Diana. Yes. And various other roles too. Yes, everyone gets more than one role. Yes, we uh, all have plenty of roles. But it's yeah. the same money. I'm playing Cherie Booth and then Blair, obviously. Yeah. I was playing Peter Mandel. Amongst others. Where are we going with the with the voice? I think we're probably going like this, Harry, to be honest. Right. Pint? Fancy a pint? Like like I do. <laughs> yeah. Like Very big, wide smile. Yeah. Quite manic in the right. eyes. Yeah. Uh, sort of like open the teeth a little bit. See, my problem is I've got very tiny eyes. <laughs> Howie Hill there talking about his uh, news book, musical, which, as he mentioned, he's written with uh, Steve Brown. Uh, they co-wrote the um, the X Factor musical, I Can't Sing, which I saw at the London Palladium and thought was excellent, but not many other people did, and it didn't last very long. Anyway, I caught up with Steve, uh, along with Gary Trainer, who you heard there, who plays Gordon Brown, and Madison Swan, who plays Diana. So I started off by asking Steve, what's this all about? Well, it, it'll surprise nobody, I think, uh, to, to, to learn that it was Harry's idea. And, uh, you know, it's his crazy world, and the rest of us just live in it. And uh, he had an idea for... Uh, doing this uh, originally because of, of course we wrote I Can't Sing previously which Gary Trainer was in and you know we enjoyed doing it we enjoyed the writing of it it was just all the other stuff that drove us nuts and so uh, when we were talking about what to do he had an idea of, of, of doing this uh, the story of Tony Blair with the use of really dreadful cheesy pop songs of the, the late 60s and 70s we had a little tryout with that. It was absolutely revolting, you know, and everybody got uh, brain damage and ear bleed. To explain um, what an anti-jukebox musical is, what does, what's the difference between a musical and a rock opera? The difference between them, well, the main difference is uh, the title. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's called a rock opera to kind of skew people's expectations. Because um, there's something about a rock opera uh, and the, the, the conflation of, uh, it's, it's almost a portmanteau, not quite, but the conflation of those two words uh, uh, it, 
uh, changes uh, your expectation of it. And what it says is it sets something overblown and pretentious, which we thought was kind of ideal for the Tony Blair uh, story. And so what, now that you've worked on it with, with Harry Hill, what's, what's the appeal of the story of Tony Blair? What, it, what is it about the life and times of Tony Blair, a man who hasn't been prime, you know, became prime minister 25 years ago, hasn't been uh, prime minister for 15, well, how long um, is it, 2007, 15 years. What, why, why, what is it about his story? Well, it, actually, to go back to the, the rock opera thing, it is, we use uh, modern styles of music, we use uh, of many different styles of music uh, within the show, but there's something about his story that is very operatic. You know, it's got that trage tragedian sort of element, uh, of to get a lot of laughs in it, and that is that he began, he began life as a peace-loving, could, could have been the front man in a band because that was his original idea, he loves his music, yeah. loved his Nolan Liam and the Britpop and all that kind of thing that was happening at the same time. Uh, so he wanted uh, he wanted to make his mark in some way, and I think it could have been in any direction. He just happened to fall into the Premiership. So he's a man who loved uh, peace and uh, you know and, and had this kind of rock and roll thing about him, and he went through the whole process uh, and ended up being described by many others as a warmonger and uh, being loathed and, re and reviled. So it's a tragedy in a way. It's almost Shakespearean in the proportions. But there's a lot of funny stuff in it, <laughs> like John Prescott and Robin Cook and Gordon Brown and all, all the people around, and George Bush. I mean, these are comic characters. Does it also, is it helpful having that bit of distance? They're not sort of live, um, I mean, some of the, most of them are still alive, but there's a bit of distance there. They, 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 um, they're now sort of, uh, they're not active political characters. So you can poke a bit of fun. There might be a bit of affection there that there wasn't there when they were sort of serving politicians. Does that help? I, I don't know that there's necessarily a, a lot of affection for him. And this is one of the things that uh, fascinates us about it. Uh, about him it, it is and why people have that kind of visceral response to him if they're anti him and uh, the most vocal uh, commentators on it tend to be anti it, it's it's difficult diff, difficult to be loudly diffident if you see what i mean which i would i would describe myself as i don't know i can see arguments against i can see arguments for and that's very healthy as a, as a writer. But why now? And uh, it, it, because, as you say, you can't do you can't tell a story while it's still being rolled out. So you couldn't do Boris Johnson because it's extending every day. There's a new act of grotesque, farcical nature every single every single week that passes. So we'd be constantly rewriting it. And you've done that. I mean, you as a previous writer, you've written Spitting Image on the Roy Bremner show, Dead Ringers, that real sort of, you know, live satire, what's just happened this week, what's happening next week. Was it, is there something quite nice yeah. about sort of knowing how the story ends? Absolutely. No, I, I think for a show of this nature, it's, it's pretty vital. I mean, there is, there's the play on at the moment about Trump, uh, 47. And I, I don't want to prejudge it and I will go and see it, but I find it odd because 
we, I, as far as Trump is concerned, I think we're in the interval. You know what I mean? There's a second act waiting to be played out. And uh, I hope it's a disastrous one, of course, like all right-thinking men and women. But the story's not <laughs> that, that that story's not over. And we should expect your, so as well as co-writing it, you're, you're writing the music and um, the lyrics as well as a lyricist. I, as a, as a hardcore Alan Partridge fan, obviously first came across you as Glenn Ponder um, with, your, with, your, with your band. Tell... I'm famous for two, two things, which is that being Glenn Ponder in the Know Me, Know You series, and also the fact that I wrote the Wonky Donkey thing for Out and Deck. Did you? And now, and now the Tony Bear musical. Give me a sense of, if you can, some, I don't know, musical styles, song titles. What can we expect from the music of, of the Tony Blair oh, rock opera? It's a, I say it's a rock opera. You know, we start off like that. We begin with a very operatic, uh, the, like the, the, the ballad of Tony Blair thing at, the, at the beginning. And then that goes into a rock number, which is quite sort of, uh, you know, sort of queenish, I suppose. There's a kind of a prog rock sort of thing going on there, but then yeah, there is more operatic stuff. But we have we have a tango, we have a bubblegum Californian pop sort of thing going on. Then we go into vaudeville. We've got a Gilbert and Sullivan. We go all over the place. It's less really a rock opera than what you might call a poporetta. A, a poporetta, very good. Well, tell you what. Now let's bring in two of the people trying to make a success of all of that on stage. Uh, Gary Trainer, you're playing Gordon Brown. Madison Swan, you're playing Diana. So, uh, what happens? Uh, first of all, Madison, you get the call. Harry Hill is writing a musical. Harry Hill and Steve Brown writing a musical about Tony Blair. Do you want to come and play Diana? Absolutely, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Explain the appeal of this. The appeal of it is just having the chance to play a character that I probably normally wouldn't get the opportunity to play. Which, uh, I should explain for listeners who don't know, you're black. <laughs> so that's a, to get the call to play Diana <laughs> yes. is, an inter- is an interesting call. Yes, I mean, we're making progress in the world, but not that quickly. So it was still a shock <laughs> for me when I got the call to play Princess Diana. As I said before, an amazing opportunity, an amazing opportunity to work with Steve Brown and Harry Hill. And I just knew it would be bizarre when I got the call. And it has been just as bizarre as I predicted. <laughs> now, Gary, you, I mean, you have more of a physical resemblance to, jo- uh, to, to Gordon Brown. <laughs> yes, a little bit, a little bit. I um, uh, Also I'm from Northern Ireland, so the, the accents are reasonably similar. To, to us English people, they're basically all the same. <laughs> it's, just, it's just at a different, it's just at a different speed going. Um yeah. Uh, and what about you? You get the call to play uh, Gordon Brown. Is that someone you you have any sympathy for? You've enjoyed sending up. Do you have any views on him previously? To be quite honest with you, when when Steve gave me the call, I was uh, working as a delivery driver during the pandemic, and he says, "Do you want to come do a workshop?" And I was like, "You don't even need to tell me what it is." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and how are you both approaching it? Are they because imp- it's clearly a big wacky cartoonish sort of thing is it are you doing an impression are you is it a caricature are, are you just doing whatever you like and you'll just happen to be gordon brown in diana princess of the world how are you approaching the part i think as much uh, of it 
as it is wacky, we still have all done like research about our individual characters. And I think we've just taken small physicalities, flavours, yeah. accents, and sort of putting our own twist on it while representing the character to the best of our ability while being extremely silly at the same time. Yeah, we're sending these people up as well, you know, so this is, it can be melodramatic, it can be quite um, broad brushstrokes at some places, but that's where we can find the the real comedy in it because, you know, the characterization may be broad brushstroke, but the lyrics that are coming out are quite spitfire and and sharp. So the, the juxtaposition of it can be quite funny. We're never asking for straight uh, impersonation. We much we much rather have some um, a very stylized approach, and there's always an expectation. One of the things about Madison playing Princess Diana is that it, whoever you got, people would be looking at it thinking, "Oh, does she really look like her?" No, I don't think really that. Once you remove that, no one bats an eyelid. No one thinks anything of it. It it just makes sense. In, in you know in some kind of funny way and we have female actors uh, playing male characters there's a Rosie Strobel is um, uh, is a, a, a John Prescott and uh, Kay Adams is uh, is Robin Cook um, it's good it's good to do that. good to mix it up but uh, Gary are you sort of are you doing a Scottish accent is it if you, show show me your can you give it give us a yeah it, 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 it's Gordon Brown, I mean, my my big uh, sort of hint towards him is, is the slight affectation he has when he, he breathes in. It's a, it's a slight, he'd be talking a bit like that there, and every so often he'd be, there'd be a, there'd be a slight uh, intake of, of, audible intake of breath. Um, and, you know, that's probably as far but as I'm going. You get it completely. <laughs> with, with that alone, once you once you spot <laughs> that these politicians do these things, you can't unsee it. So yeah. that's how you, that's how you've nailed. If you've yeah, got yeah. A, if you've got something, Madison, when you're doing Diana. Yeah, I definitely make my voice a little more RP than it is naturally. I also have you know some little subtle looks and physicality that I do. I think it's just finding the little quirks of each character and then just you know what makes them unique. Go on, give us a little bit mm-hmm. of your Diana. Um. Gosh, Tony, you're all knotted up. Just relax. Now, just even that se- even that <laughs> sentence. It's <laughs> actually came back from the grave. I'm, I'm like, Sorry, I, I, I feel like we're having a little seance. Uh, <laughs> so give, give me a sec. That that sentence alone, you're all knotted up. That that worries me that you're painting a picture of where the where the, the uh, where the plot might be going. What's the weirdest? What's the weirdest thing that you can tell us that your character does in the sh- in the show? I think mine has an inability to keep his trousers up. Yeah. <laughs> Not because of any sexual impropriety, but more because I think he's more uh, focused on politics than remembering to so, do his so belt it's, it's a competence rather than a, rather than a, a sexual thing. <laughs> what about you, Madison? I think it's having some kind of dream fantasy affair with Tony Blair that would only ever happen in Tony's imagination. <laughs> I need to tell you, I came to see I Can't Sing. And I loved it. Oh, you! <laughs> one. But I, I remember thinking, I think this. Is, so this is the X Factor musical at the London Palladium. I remember thinking this is completely insane. I love it. I don't know how many other people will will find the same thing. 
Um, and actually, we won't talk about the fact it didn't last very long. Do you have higher hopes for the Tony Blair musical? Well, one, one of the uh, inspirations behind uh, doing this was uh, we, uh, when, when we were thinking about a story, we wanted to come up with a, a character, person who was even less popular than Simon Cowell. <laughs> well, you've definitely done that. You've definitely done that. And I think the... My my sense was, but I think basically lots of people came to see I Can't Sing thinking it was going to be just like watching an episode of The X Factor. And then there were aliens and dogs and that's why they, they were slightly baffled. But I loved it. I thought it was the, I really remember, I'm going slightly off as a tangent, the, the Cheryl Cole character asking someone who had a dog, what's the name of your pet dog, pet? Dog, pet, dog, pet, dog, because she was a Geordie. And it went off wages. And I thought it was a terrific joke. And it didn't get enough, uh, it didn't get enough uh, appreciation. Well, you'll notice that uh, we've approached this from, in, a, from very different, uh, in a very different way, um, which is to uh, go to f- the, the Park Theatre in Finsbury, starting on 1st of June. It's a 220-seater rather than a two-and-a-half-thousand-seater, which is what the, <laughs> the London Palladium quite, is. Quite, quite ballsy place to launch a musical. That's the thing. It, it's, um, it was a ridiculous uh, size <laughs> venue to start in, and it was, it was something that we know we wouldn't do it again, you know. So we thought, let's build this up slowly and stay in control uh, of the thing uh, completely creatively. And uh, we've got a, a, a lovely... Uh, director Peter Rowe, um, who I've worked with before, and he's fantastic. And uh, you know, we're in complete uh, charge of it, and uh, we we'll build slowly and and let the uh, we'll, we'll let it um, rise to its um, eventual scale. You know what I mean? But we'll let it happen organically. Perfect. That's a very good way of putting. It. That's a very good way of putting it. Just finally, have you invited Tony Blair to come and see it? Well, we have heard that Lauren Booth, who's uh, Cherie's sister, has been uh, sniffing around for free tickets. Uh, you can afford it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he thinks he's been sent out as... Uh, I mean, my God, if he can't afford tickets, who can? I don't... Uh, I, don't I don't... He's been hit by this. He, he, could, he could afford to fill the London Palladium on his own. He could, yeah. uh, 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 Gary, how would you feel if Gordon Brown was suddenly in the audience? Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, look, to be honest with you, um, it would be fun. I think it would be a lot of fun um, and it would be very interesting to see the look on his face. I suspect you might get quite a few politicians, current, current MPs, yeah. I think, who are still obsessed with Tony yeah. Blair. <laughs> Uh, I suspect they'll come to see it. We, we, we had a um, workshop and it was Robert Peston. Oh, Robert Peston, yeah. Ah, Robert, did he pay for his own ticket? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> Madison, I can't really ask you about Diana coming to see it. Oh, she'll be there in spirit, won't she? <laughs> well, you've captured her. You've I captured am her spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, it opens next week, so best of luck with it. I, I, I look forward to its world domination. I'm hoping to come and see it early in the run as well, so I'm can I can uh, I, I'm not sure if I'm paying for my own ticket or not, so let's not get bogged down in that. Uh, but listen, it's been really good to speak to you. Uh, Steve Brown, uh, Gary Trainer, and Madison Swan, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.